0: Reconstructionist Radio presents a war room production, Once Dead, where brothers and sisters in the faith share God's grace upon their lives, how they were once spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins, but are now kingdom driven by the grace of God so undeserved.
1: My name is Dan Knopp, and I was once dead. I was born in 1955 in the small town of Beatrice in southeastern Nebraska, the eighth of what would six years later be a family of eleven kids. Of the few memories I have of my first five or so years, most are of the wonder of the sky, trees, flowers, birds, butterflies, and the warmth of the sun. Then life started happening. Decades later, that sense of wonder and awe of God's creation has returned to be enjoyed when I take the time to slow down and give thanks. Whether I was happy as a child otherwise, I don't remember, but I suspect not, having been easily and often led to tears for years to come. Strangely, I remember when only three years old, now living in Lincoln my dad's call home telling mom to lock us in the house as serial killer Charlie Starkweather was thought to be in our neighborhood on his killing spree. He had come close but the killing spree led elsewhere. Our family went to Catholic Church where I would end up going through the whole routine from baptism to catechism to first communion and confirmation. I was clueless as to what it all meant but one thing that stands out is reading a book about the saints and picking Paul for my confirmation name. So impressed was I with his story. Grades one through three in Catholic school were challenging, as it should be, but even more so as I was expected to live up to the standards supposedly set by my older brothers as they attended the years ahead of me. This would go on from then and all through high school. A great fear was put into us as we neared fourth grade, Everyone had heard details about how brutal school would be starting in the fourth grade and that the nuns would show no mercy. We weren't even allowed up to the second floor of the building until the first day of fourth grade, making the fear of what went on up there even worse. Fear and guilt are used masterfully by the Roman Catholic Church and from an early age. Over the years, other converts from Catholicism have shared with me the familiar story of how fear and guilt were so ingrained in us, that there was no way of shaking it outside of a new life. So a good part of third grade was spent fearing the climb up the stairs to what awaited us in the fourth grade, but this was a bullet I would dodge as things would change in a big way before I got to the fourth grade. When I was eight years old my dad died suddenly and my mom was left with seven of us still at home to raise. She was not fond of my dad's family in Nebraska so she moved us to Southern California To be near her brother's family who could help us out, which they did. Part of the family went in the car and mom and the rest of us took a train out west. That was a train ride to remember, but that's a story for another time. Just imagine a newly single mom letting a pack of young boys run loose on the California Zephyr until they wore themselves out and fell asleep to finally allow other passengers a rest. Repeat for three days. I don't remember what my sisters did, But we boys had the summer of 64 to ourselves and spent much of the time running around our new town, enjoying the weather and the freedom. In the fall, we were to attend public school. But for the time being, we would take advantage of a hot, endless California summer. For me at least, now nine years old, the whole world had changed. We'd suddenly gone from small-town Nebraska, Mayberry-esque if you like, to Southern California, with miles of beaches full of near-naked people, hot rods, motorcycles, surfing, skateboarding, and unlimited lifestyle possibilities. From strict, guilt and fair-ridden Catholic schooling to modern and free, wide-open public school, and from family life with a father in the house to a fatherless family. The change of culture was like a tsunami that flooded over me, and at times I could still feel the drawback current, trying to grab any weakness in me to pull me back out to sea, some 50 years later. Thanks be to God, I now have a sure anchor. Other than the funny way I talked, which amused the other kids to no end, Nebraska would quickly fade away. Fourth grade in public school was a cakewalk. Good grades came without effort, as I had already learned in three years of Catholic school the things they would be teaching us in fourth through sixth grade in public school sixth grade was especially easy, almost like kindergarten. Most days our teacher would put on a movie to keep us occupied, while she would spend time in the restroom dealing with medical issues, so she would tell us. She would later die from her addiction, and I would later learn that my best friend at the time had been supplying her drugs. That's right, a sixth grader dealing drugs to the teacher. By seventh grade I was totally bored with school, since there was nothing really challenging to learn I resented having to go, only looking forward to the two-mile walk to and from school to provide me with various entertainments. I knew I was an underachiever, my teachers knew it, and it was a rare teacher that would connect with me on any level, so I made no effort and spent a lot of class time doodling and making drawings in exchange for other kids' lunch money. As a young teenager, I escaped into reading finding new and exciting worlds in science fiction paperbacks and magazines. I read them all, and actually learned more from them than from school. But that led to me becoming very interested in the paranormal, ESP, astrology, and the occult. I became determined to make this mysticism my future. But the more I studied it, the less appealing it became, so I dumped it before it could get too strong of a hold on me. There was plenty of good old science fiction reading left to escape to, and I did. At that time, I insisted I was no longer going with the family on Sundays to Catholic Church. I don't think my mom thought it was doing us any good anyway, and the church certainly wasn't doing anything for our family, so there wasn't much of a fight from her. Through high school, I still was considered a good kid, but without any other motivations, my only goals were to get a driver's license and a car and to get out of school. My biggest challenge in high school was avoiding the dean, as I did my best to break the rules against growing sideburns, mustaches, and beards. What a rebel. Most of the guys I hung out with were getting heavily into the drug culture, so friendships fell away one by one. I took metal shop and auto shop classes to temper my boredom, but pretty much knew everything they were teaching, so nothing was gained there other than a few credits toward graduation. My sister gave me a 55 Chevy, and my brother gave me a 56 Chevy, so I had cars to work on well before having a driver's license. At 14, I knew how to drive, at least well enough to crash an older friend's Corvette when he insisted I take the wheel. Well, I guess I knew well enough how to drive, except for never having driven a stick shift. My friend made up a hit-and-run story and found a cop to report it to. I could tell the cop wasn't buying it, and I kept silent the whole time, while my friend fabricated an elaborate lie. The cop let us go, but for weeks I was afraid the truth would come out and I'd be hauled off to detention, or worse, my mom would find out. But I dodged that bullet, and nothing ever came of it. I was getting worse at picking friends. The guy across the street got his driver's license first, so I would tag along on his adventures, once even sneaking into an establishment in San Diego that catered to sailors on shore leave, where he could get a quick visual education On the anatomy of the female that included things even the public schools left out in the 60s. Another time he fished his dad's magazines from under his parents mattress and we would educate ourselves some more in an old shack behind his house. Yet another time we snuck four six packs of beer out the back door of the local market. We hadn't planned on where we were going with it, but soon dropped the beer and hightailed it when we heard a police siren nearing our trail. After more escapades with him, I started to get uncomfortable with the friendship and walked away from it with the handy excuse of his sorry driving skills, which actually were quite scary. By the time I got that coveted driver's license, the school had adopted an open campus policy, giving me the freedom to use the license and be off campus at every opportunity to cruise around the county with a couple of friends. Good times feeling the freedom, but totally wasted times. My life became all about cars, buying them, making them faster, and street racing. Every dollar earned working at a gas station and a car dealership went into the cars. It was bucket loads of fun, but looking back at how unsafe all that horsepower made those primitive machines, I just shake my head and thank God he kept me alive and kept me from killing others on the road. One late night out cruising and racing, just like in the movie American Graffiti, which I've seen at least a dozen times. I joined a school friend in his car. We picked up two girls who looked even more underage than we were, probably about 14 or 15, and cruised around with them sitting in our laps in Carl's two-seater Corvette with the top down. We tried to talk a man outside of a liquor store into buying us some beer, but to no avail, and the girls soon asked to be dropped off. I joined some friends waiting in a parking lot for the next street racing challenge, while Carl went off drinking. On the way home that night, I spotted his Corvette wrecked off the road. Carl was dead. I had dodged the bullet, but was crushed. He wouldn't be the last friend to suddenly be gone. You'd think I would have learned, but I didn't yet. Growing up just wasn't a thing for a young man to do in the 70s in California. Early one summer, a girl from school came riding on her horse in front of my house, obviously out of the way from any of the regular trails in the area. We started dating, and she introduced me to the joys of riding horses and smoking marijuana. We would soon spend a good part of that summer together, getting high and riding those beautiful animals. On my drive home from her parents' house on the ranch one evening, I suspected that there was more than just pot in the joint we had shared. My sense of time was completely warped, and the view through the windshield stretched and shrank like a long rubber band. I could see the stop sign I knew to be a hundred feet away, but it seemed to take hours to stop, even though it felt like my boot was burying the brake pedal with superhuman pressure. I don't know how I got home alive, but looking back it's evident God had a reason I wouldn't suffer the fate that some of my friends already had. I didn't think it at the time, but whatever angel that was catching the bullets coming at me must have had a handful of lead by now. Summer came to an end. My girlfriend moved on to doing hard drugs with another guy. I found this out at school after he had almost killed himself when he told his mom's VW camper in the long driveway at the ranch. I had mixed feelings about all this, as I had become good friends with a girl who was a foster child in his family, and his mom had recently objected to her hanging out with me, which she did a lot. But I got the message. I never saw my girlfriend again, and again I felt like I dodged a bullet. Or maybe somebody was watching out for me. One more time I got drunk with friends. All I remember is passing out at a stranger's house after having puked all over their new carpet. I woke up the next afternoon at home, not remembering the drive home at all. A friend said he followed me to see that I made it home. I didn't suffer my friend Carl's fate, nor had I killed anyone else in my blind, drunken stupor. How many more times could I dodge these bullets? The drinking joined the weed as something I was done with. If drag racing was going to be in the future for me, the other vices had to go. My racing stable soon included a Plymouth Hemi Satellite, a Hemi Roadrunner and a Dodge Challenger 446 pack, three of the faster cars out of Detroit at the time, as well as several less powerful cars, but I still wasn't smart enough to take all that horsepower to the drag strip where safety for myself and others would not be ignored. After installing a new clutch in one of my cars, I took a fast test pass down the street, only to find with a 10 mile per hour corner coming up quickly, the gas pedal had stuck full throttle. There was no way to make the turn at high speed, so even with shutting off the engine and piling on the brakes, I slammed into a neighbor's house. The front wall of the house was a mess, as well as the piano behind it, but nobody was hurt. Thinking back, I'm surprised I didn't hear the bullet zing by this time, but I didn't. Later on the way to the courtroom, I came very close to having another car totaled by someone running a red light. But all was well, and the judge was convinced of the mechanical failure that I claimed sent me into the house. Sweet, I thought. I took extra classes to get through high school a year early, including two gym classes back to back. One was all basketball, tennis, and wrestling, and the other the coach made us run cross country at the beginning of class and the first 10 runners back got a pass to spend the rest of the time playing volleyball. I was fast. Even barefoot I would usually come in first or second, always in the top 10. So I played a lot of volleyball. That was pretty much my whole last year of high school and I did graduate a year early and never looked back. After high school I met a girl at work and asked her out on a dare from a coworker and we hit it off. She was just turning 16, sweet 16, and I was 18. Our first date was spent at a drive-in theater, but not in the front seat. With the exception of my mom, everybody loved this girl, and nobody doubted we would soon be walking the aisle, as we were hoping to do the next year. We were tight. Nothing could separate us, not even her smashing up my Dodge while driving intoxicated. Things were going great, but her older sister suddenly got a divorce and convinced my girlfriend to cancel any thoughts of getting married. I got it. Sisters can be tighter than lovers. And for what I have now, I thank God I didn't go down that path. But I was really broken up. The night she told me, I stopped on the way home and vented my anger on my car with my foot, making a mess of the fender. This was the car she had wrecked and we had worked together to restore. The rage didn't make me feel any better nor did it resolve any anger issues. We would be friends again soon, but the feeling of the need to get out of Southern California was really getting strong. There just seemed to be a darkness about the place for me, one I would come to understand better in the years to come. Indeed, there was a darkness in the culture, but later I would learn there was an even worse darkness in my own heart. All I knew was I had to get out of Southern California. Something was pulling me away and the pull was irresistible. So I sold my cars, packed my truck, and moved to Sacramento where I had a brother and a sister I could stay with until getting settled. The place where I worked in Sacramento was described by a co-worker as Peyton Place. I never watched the show, but I got the gist of it from the goings on at work. One day a guy in the office handed me a vial of cocaine. No thanks, I said, and handed it back. Not that I was finally getting wise, just that there was no desire to be friends with him, and I'm pretty sure that refusal cost me a nice promotion I was coveting. I shared a work table with an older gal named Annie, who had a twinkle in her eye, seriously, and an always-ready smile. She loved to hum songs and laughed easily, but what she loved most was talking about Jesus and the Bible. I listened to her, and we became friends. I bought a Bible and started reading it. Another gal at work invited me to a Christian concert at her church. I met her husband and four young boys there and we all seemed to hit it off well. Soon this married woman started dressing up for work, makeup, heels, revealing outfits, and started flirting with me. I was too naive to see what was right in front of my face. Sometime after quitting that job, I would find out from Annie and her husband John that this woman had left her husband and family and went off to Paris with a young man. Just what she had been intending to do with me. By this time, I should be getting an award for bullet dodging. Or maybe better yet, start wising up. Meanwhile, another gal from the office was doing the same thing. Dressing up and flirting. She came up from the office to my desk one day, Dressed to kill, all in black, and the whole warehouse got quiet as she walked up to me and leaned over my desk with yet another flimsy paperwork excuse. This happened often enough to become a distraction from work. One day in the lunch room, she asked if anyone could give her a ride to the car dealership to pick up her car. Again it got quiet, and I felt like everyone was looking at me. I cracked, said it was on my way home. We would hardly talk during the whole ride, and there was never a problem with her at work after that day. I think my asking her about her husband set the tone there. Working at Peyton Place was very interesting for an aimless, clueless young man. I walked too close to darkness, too many times, but didn't at the time realize that the darkness that was the real problem was in my heart. All the while, Annie and I were still sharing laughs and talking about Jesus, She did most of the talking, but I listened. She never judged, just shared what she was passionate about. So we talked, and I was really getting interested. On the way out the door on my final day there, we said goodbye. She wished me well and encouraged me to keep reading the Bible. On parting, she handed me a greeting card. On the front of the card was a picture of a feast laid out on a beautiful table setting. Inside was an invitation to dine at the wedding. Feast of the King. Yeah, I knew what king it meant, and it wasn't Elvis. I stood looking at the card, looked up to the sky, and pondered the invitation. Thinking of how reading the Bible, I was now able to understand things in it that were previously incomprehensible. In my mind, I was ready to accept the invitation. But truly accepting it in my heart would have to come later. For now, I was headed back to San Diego where a friend had bought a business and asked me to help him with it. The business had everything stolen just as he took possession of it, so there was a lot of work to do building it up again from an empty building, just the distraction I needed. Back in Southern California, I buried myself in my work, fast cars, of course, and Bible reading. I would listen to some Christian radio programs, especially hanging on every word of J. Vernon McGee, Besides the Bible, I devoured everything I could find to read by C.S. Lewis, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and Francis Schaeffer. I could have done worse for a beginner in the faith, but I would soon get tied up in the end times rapture hysteria, reading all the books and going to the seminars. I couldn't understand why there were Christians picketing outside some of the seminars and just walked past them. Maybe if I'd accepted one of their tracts, I wouldn't have ended up wasting years sidetracked by this end times mania. I had no desire to attend a church yet, and was content to spend my time in the desert reading all I could find. One night I laid in my bed and prayed, not really knowing where to start, but knowing this was the hour. In my heart I was finally ready to acknowledge the invitation, confessing to the Lord of the banquet a life not worthy to attend the feast being so freely offered. This was the hour. I was invited and there was no resisting the invitation. When the prayer was ended, a feeling of calm came over me, and I relaxed for a good night of sleep. But before sleep would come, I felt something as if physically and very real grabbing onto me. I couldn't move a muscle, but my mind and now my heart were made up. I wasn't going anywhere. If this was something evil grabbing me, I would just stay put until it quit. If it was God, I wasn't resisting. I don't remember how long I was paralyzed, but after a while, the overwhelming presence left and sleep came with a full night of extraordinarily peaceful rest and freshness in the morning. Work was good. Great pay, benefits, company vehicle, paid car insurance and gas, complete health insurance, everything I could want, especially a boss who believed in me. I was managing an exceptional crew in a fabrication shop. The owner had done an amazing job of not only resurrecting the business, but building it up to much more than it had ever been. But once again, I was getting antsy about living in Southern California. The pull was again irresistible, and I had to get out. After paring down to what would fit in a single truck, Oregon became the next stop for me. Shortly after arriving, I found an affordable apartment. A couple of short-lived Bible studies popped up. One was started by a guy who just wanted to hook up with a cute Christian girl in the apartment complex. I could see it was a ruse, so I didn't go back, and neither did she. About that time, the manager of the apartments had noticed a small church up the road and invited me along to visit it the next Sunday. And without hesitation, I said yes, surprising myself. Up front that Sunday, two lovely girls were leading worship. Their voices were beautiful and the face of one was like an angel to me as I could see the joy that lit up her face as she sang so beautifully even as she smiled and her eyes met mine. My friend never returned to the church after that first visit but I kept going back, got baptized during a meeting at the river and started spending all my spare time with the beautiful singer and her charming five-year-old daughter. During a short lull in conversation at dinner very early in our relationship the precious young girl piped in, saying, My mom is looking for a new husband. Wow! Kids do pay attention when you pray with them, which is what my future bride had been doing. Within half a year we were married. It could take days to relate how many times we saw God's hand in our lives in that time, as well as before and after, but that's a story for another time. Thirty years later we are still together, still love God, and still see His hand in our lives. And through two lovely daughters, he has given us six beautiful grandchildren so far. As I look back and see all the bullets dodged, of course I now realize it wasn't me, but that it was all the grace and love of Jesus. The more I read God's word, the more I can see his hand throughout our lives, in nature, in salvation, and in everything today and through time and history. It is still a dim vision, and I still fail him daily. So I look back and see God's hand in everything. He allowed the culture shock tsunami when I was young. He even allows the backdraw from the tsunami when my weaknesses try to pull me back to sea. But God is strong in man's weakness. Jesus is my anchor in the storms. I know that I know I am alive. It's only because of Jesus I'm alive. And more every day I want to know him more, love him more, serve him more, and discover the bounds of the work he commands me to do in his ever-growing kingdom. This is an irresistible desire that just gets stronger, the more I look into His Word, the more I relate with and learn from others working to build God's kingdom, and the more that God works in my heart to slay the darkness there and bring forth light. With the long diversion through dispensationalism and the tide of end times frenzy that carried me adrift for too many years, as it has so many others, I've only lately come to an optimistic faith, where I know Jesus is on the throne now, ruling over heaven and earth in every aspect of life, building an ever-increasing kingdom that will never end. And in that faith I am a subject of the King, and as his subject I am to be doing my part and carrying out his will for his present kingdom on earth as in heaven. To that end, I appreciate your prayers, encouragement, and support, as I seek to know and do what my King and Master Jesus would have me do and what part of kingdom building he would have me work in from one day to the next for the rest of my days. My name is Dan Nopp, and I am now, by the grace of God, kingdom driven.